Monday, Monday afternoon, theologians. And we're back again. Always great to see you, especially when today we have the shortest podcast on record. Yeah? How so? Because it's really simple. When we introduce our topic of being gay is okay, the answer is no. All right. See you next week. <laughs> Bye. Tune in again for another episode. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe we should go into a bit more detail on the hows and whys and why we think that. That's a good idea. We are often tempted to avoid controversy or controversy if you're from Canada. And so it's easy to want to take the easy way out and just answer it with something that we know is going to push somebody away and let them leave us alone. But that's not what we want to do. We want to engage people in compassionate conversation. And I got to say, if there are certain third rail words that are even more dangerous than others, this would be one of them. <laughs> this would definitely be one of them. This is perhaps one of the most divisive topics we could possibly have chosen, which is probably why we have chosen it. I mean, if you just look at the headlines today. Yeah. And that's the tough part about this whole issue because it has been so divisive in our country, especially. And unfortunately, there have been some awful things said in a spirit of anger and even, shall we say it, carnality by people who believe that they're doing God a favor by pouring out just seething hatred for anybody who differs with them about topics like homosexuality. And when people who profess to follow Christ speak that way with hostility and anger and dissension and division, against people who need the transforming work of Christ's spirit, then they're really operating out of the spirit of the flesh. So says the writer of Galatians uh, chapter five, that fruit of the spirit, they're not speaking out of a spirit of Christ. They're doing a lot of damage because they're being fleshly in their overreaction to this topic. So that being said, we're trying to take this with a different approach so that hopefully people might actually listen to us knowing that we care about them. Yeah, it sounded like you were describing a particular church when you were talking about the hostility, anger, the division. Oh, have done so much harm in the concept of how church people are supposed to react to people who have yet to find the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But the good news is, and I'm going to do a shameless plug here for season six coming up in a couple of episodes, mm -hmm. where we're going to do a whole series on what it looks like to flesh out the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to have a challenge for those of you who want to be extra involved in what we're doing for season six. Right. And here's the thing that's a little tricky. Some people handle truth like it's a sledgehammer, and they think they're doing a good thing by just pounding people with that truth. But when they operate out of the spirit of the flesh, and there's no love attached to their message of truth, then that's when the damage happens. Bridges are burnt instead of built, and people run as far away as they can from that kind of depiction of Christianity. And that's just one side of the story, because on the flip side, some believe that in order to be loving, then they need to simply accept people's interpretations of the scripture, no matter how far off they may be. And that to allow them to think it's biblically okay to live a lifestyle that the Bible says is actually wrong. And that can be very dangerous and in some cases very harmful. Oh, yes, it can. Because truth without love is damaging. 
But as you've just said, love without truth, equally damaging. And we're trying really hard to strike a biblical balance. And we're prayerful that God's going to give us love as our motive and truth as our message, all for the purpose of God's redemption. And that's why, as we approach this very difficult subject, we want to be clear that Jesus loves people who label themselves as gay. He loves straight people. He loves black people and white people. He loves the Jews and the Gentiles. He loves the Muslims and the Buddhists. He loves everybody. He loved them so much that he went to the cross to die in their place. You're so right. That song from Sunday school came up in my mind. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. He loves everybody enough to die for them. You're right. And as we have continually said from the very beginning of these podcasts, we always want to try as best we can to begin with God's love as the motive for everything we say. And it was God's love that motivated him to willingly give up his own life to remit the payment of sin so that we sinners could be connected with him relationally because he really desires that kind of connection. And we fully believe this about God. We believe that God's love is greater than any sin. And for those who want to get to know him, he's right there. He's waiting. All you have to do is seek him and you will find him. That's so true. And for those who choose to ask for his forgiveness and to trust him with their lives, God forgives their sin. He promises to do it, and he does it. He gives them his Holy Spirit, who guides them into truth, and that truth is found in Scripture, God's inspired word, and those people begin to abide in Christ. They literally are connected to him like a branch is to the vine, and that allows him to transform them more and more into his image. And that's at the heart of the gospel message. It's also important for us to be clear that there are many sins that will keep us from the life that God wants for us. There's no categories. There's no special one or two extra horrible bad sins. You know, there's no distinction with any sin that separates us from God. We need to be aware that God's desire for our true freedom includes recognizing our sin, repenting from it, and beginning a new life in which we trust him to keep us from that sin not just homosexual sin, not just any type of sin. You know, there's long lists of them, especially in the writings of Paul, you know, category after category after category, and every one of them is just as sinful as the others. And we're told that if we are guilty of one, we're guilty of them all. So there's no special thing about the homosexual sin, but yet it seems to get so much more attention that we need to address it. Right. You're so right. It's good for us to remember that we're not just singling out one specific sin that way. And the question is asked, well, will people who have been tempted with some form of sexual sin backslide at some point in their life and fall back into that sinful behavior? Well, yeah, of course. We all fall back into some sort of sin. I talked with a guy who was trying to clean up his verbiage because he, he was in the military and he cussed like a sailor because he was a sailor. And it was hard for him, and he kept falling back into that sin, but he kept repenting of it, and God kept helping him. God was cleaning up his life bit by bit. So whatever that sin is that's the, the one that we struggle with the most, some of us are going to fall back into some form of sin at some point. With me, it's anger. I really struggle with anger in my life. And some of that fruit of the Spirit, I'm trusting that God's going to continue to build that fruit into my life and that it will be shown through my character eventually. 
but I still struggle with certain things. So some fall back into the sin related to different forms of addiction, and some fall back into sexual sin. So then the question becomes, can sin be forgiven? Well, anytime we read the New Testament, we find that the answer, of course, is yes. And here's the passage that spells it out. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, whether that's the big R repentance that we do when we confess the first time or the little R repentance that we do on a daily basis whenever we find ourselves convicted of something that we've fallen back into. And as we carefully and compassionately make our way into this discussion, I would like to respond to a couple of pieces of misinformation that unfortunately a lot of so-called preachers have propagated. First, there's a myth that many preachers have preached related to the teaching, and they say, if you truly trust Jesus as Savior, he will remove the temptation for any sin so that you don't have to be tempted any longer. And I would say that's just not true. And it's not scriptural, especially if you read a lot of Paul's writings in his letters in the New Testament. You can tell that many believers in the first century were falling back into certain types of sins, even after they were believers. Paul said things like, and some of you were once like that, says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And there was a whole list of sins that he had put before that, referring to a variety of sinful behaviors, including sexual sin, both heterosexual and same-sex sin. So these things are definitely not scriptural to say, oh, God will just wipe that temptation away from you, and you'll never be tempted again. And Paul himself wrote that he prayed many times for God to remove a thorn in the flesh. Mm -hmm. And God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. We find that in 2 Corinthians 12. So what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? We don't know. Some think it was physical, like poor eyesight. Some think it was feeling of guilt or shame brought on by Satan, who tempted Paul to doubt the forgiveness that God had already bestowed on him. A little history, Paul had persecuted believers in Christ and actually stood by and watched and validated the death of believers. The story of Stephen comes to mind as a particular one we see just before Paul's conversion. So if the thorn in the flesh had to do with shame and guilt, Paul had to be reminded that God's grace had covered all of his sins. And he didn't need to live under that cloud of guilt and shame anymore, even though his sin had been horrendous. Yeah, I can't imagine the guilt that must have plagued him in his earlier walk with Christ because of all that. But keep in mind that even though Paul was tempted to doubt his relationship with God, to doubt God's forgiveness, and to doubt that he had been completely freed from guilt, God's grace which is made new every morning, continues to be poured out on everybody whose sins have been forgiven. It says in Lamentations 3, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. So with every sin in the life of every believer, if we still have a desire that leads to a temptation we used to have prior to our trust in Christ, that doesn't mean we're separated from God's grace. It means we can rely on his grace, to rely on him and his strength, to continue reminding us of his grace that is greater than our sin, and he can continue to keep us pure by giving us the strength to overcome these temptations and to live a life of trust in him. Now, there's some bad theology out there. You know, it's been put out by some teachers and some preachers, 
who have meant well, but they just aren't biblically correct. And one damaging teaching is that when we place our faith in Christ, he will completely remove the temptation that we used to have. And that simply is not true. You know, there are times when he will deliver someone from a particular sin, but more often than not, we have to look at his grace every day and his mercies every day. Sometimes it can be difficult, but it's not true that that temptation will be just taken away. Yeah, you're so right. It's not true that all temptations will be just wiped out. For example, let me contrast two people I know or have known personally. Uh, in one case, God did not remove a temptation. And in the other case, he completely removed it. And it was the same sin, the same problem that these guys dealt with. One of my friends, his name is Denny. He wouldn't mind me sharing this because it's part of his testimony, but he gave up smoking years ago. And the thing that keeps him from falling back into that habit is his frugality because he can't stand the high cost of cigarettes. <laughs> Denny keeps track of how much he has been saving all these years by not buying cigarettes. And he announced the other day when we had coffee together that he had maintained sobriety from cigarettes for over 20 years. And he has saved more than the price of a pretty good car in the course of that time. And yet, even though he has successfully lived a lifestyle of cigarette abstinence <laughs> for over 20 years, he still has cravings to smoke. He says that if he'll walk through a cloud of cigarette smoke somewhere, that old desire just wells up inside of him. And he really wants a cigarette. But on the opposite side of that, to show somebody who had a different experience, my own father-in-law, George Castle, who is now in heaven, he also smoked for years. He smoked a lot, like three, four packs a day. And he started when he was 11 years old. And then he smoked for about 40 years after that, before he became so convicted that it was harmful to his body and that secondhand smoke was probably not doing any good to his kids. And so he got convicted. He walked up to the altar at church one Sunday morning. He laid a half pack of cigarettes on that altar and said, God, I need you to help me quit because I can't do this in my own strength. And he walked away from that pack of cigarettes and he walked away from smoking. And in his case, it's very unique, but God removed that craving. He said he never had cravings again after that. So some may still have desires to go back into a certain sinful behavior that they wanted to escape, but it doesn't mean God doesn't love them. Some may find it easy to quit, whether that be quitting a relationship or quitting a behavior, and others will still continue to struggle. But in every case, as it was in Paul, God's grace is strong enough to help them overcome that sin and to keep moving forward in their walk with Jesus. So it's probably pretty obvious by now that we believe that homosexuality is a sin. Just because we believe that the Bible teaches that all sexual sin is harmful doesn't mean that we hate homosexuals. It means that we want to be authentically biblical. See, God's love motivates all of us to come back to him and live according to his design. And in this way, we can find our true identity in Christ. And as we do that, then we can be free of the bondage to sin that God knows will keep us from thriving. I'm going to give a couple of examples of people that I've known in my past. Mm -hmm. One of them was a good friend of my first wife. They had grown up in the church together, were part of the youth group together. And as he became older, he started engaging in a homosexual lifestyle. And on one side of it, he struggled, 
And on another side, he didn't because he believed that he was born that way. And we'll, we'll address that in a little bit as well. We continued to have a relationship with him and his boyfriend, even to the point where he contracted AIDS, which ultimately killed him, wow. which is you know the ultimate damage from a lifestyle that is unhealthy. And, and we don't believe that he was being punished by God for that. It was just the ultimate price that he paid for a lifestyle that he chose. And there was another time in my life where I was financially struggling, and I knew a, a man. We shared adjacent offices in a building, and he said, you know, I've got extra room if you need a place to live. And he also was a homosexual, but I thought that this might be a place to be of a witness. And I saw him struggle so much in his desire for a solid, long-lasting relationship that never materialized. And he would go clubbing, and he would come home and talk about how things were so horrible, and his life was without meaning. And it was very, very difficult for him to live that lifestyle, even though he didn't feel like he had another option. You know, it was, it was difficult to, how do I want to say it? You know, we, we shared the house, we shared the, the grocery bills, we were friends, and yet he didn't have a purpose. And I don't think, unlike the, the other story, I don't think that he ever had a really true relationship in Christ. You know, we talked about spiritual things, but it never really took hold. And it was, you know, both of those situations were sad for different reasons. And I bring those up to say, we can love the sinner, even though we know that the sin is being harmful in their life. Yes, that's an important statement. And I know we say that a lot, and it can sound like a platitude, but I still think it's true that just like God, he loves sinners, but he hates sin. That's why he had to go to the cross, in fact. And the same with us. We want to reflect God's glory to other people and his redemptive purpose. And so we love those sinners, even though we hate the sin that could literally kill them because of our love for them. And so it's all wrapped up together like that. And because there's just unfortunately a ton of really bad information on the internet right now regarding theology or so-called theology related to homosexuality, we need to back all the way up to the Old Testament to make sure that we're correctly interpreting what the Bible says on this subject. At the very beginning of humanity, God designed two genders, a male and a female, Genesis 1.27, and he did so for them to complement each other. They literally would complete each other, and the words in Hebrew meant like two pieces of a puzzle that, if you can think, and I'm not trying to be uh, metaphoric here, it's literal, that when two people come together as one flesh, as God designed in marriage, one man with one woman, it completes the puzzle. They fit together. And God didn't change his mind about that design, about his created order for marriage and man and woman. Later, uh, Jesus didn't somehow separate himself from the Trinity and go off a different direction and start preaching that homosexual relationships were okay as long as they were monogamous. Jesus never preached that. In fact, Jesus reinforced what God had started way back in Genesis when he said, what God has joined together let no man rent asunder. Another way to say that is, let no man split apart what God has joined together, which means that Jesus is saying, God started it at the very beginning. I'm continuing that. 
the Bible simply doesn't teach that it's okay for us to have homosexual relationships, even if they're long-term monogamous relationships. You know, and we don't point to the scriptures to bash anyone, although sometimes if we are confronted with sin, what the Bible talks about, and it's, you know, our lifestyle is contrary to what the Bible says, it does bash ourselves because the Holy Spirit is saying, you know, hello, I'm trying to get your attention here. But it's not our point to try to bash somebody into submission, right. and we're not trying to push people away from church or from God. You know, it's just the opposite. We want to reveal the truth because we love everybody just as God loves them, and we want them to find freedom by finding their true identity, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. Yes, so true. And may we remind you, dear listeners, that we love everyone enough to share Christ and the gospel with them. We really do. And we want to remind you that we don't hate gay people. We don't find ourselves at war with the LGBTQ movement. We love Christ because he first loved us. And if we're going to be like Christ, then we need to first love people who might not love us back. And that includes people who might belong to the LGBTQ. So we love Christ because he first loved us. We want to share his love with as many people as possible so that they too can hopefully find freedom that comes from denying self, picking up a cross, metaphorically, and following Jesus, as Jesus says that we are supposed to do if we're to be his followers. A person in another congregation, where I know the pastor really well, told that pastor, well, we don't want to be known as a church that's for gay people. And the pastor wisely responded, well, that depends on what you mean by for them. And that's true, because if being for gay people means we want them to find true peace, freedom, and eternal satisfaction as they find their true identity in Christ, then yes, we are for gay people. God is for gay people. God is for us. He's not against us. But the way he is for us is to help us find our identity in Christ, which means that we surrender our self-will, we pick up our cross, and we live for him. And that includes recognizing behaviors that he calls sin, because it creates harm, perhaps even harm we don't immediately recognize. That's right. And once we, as sinners, because we're all sinners, the Bible is very clear on that. Once we begin a relationship with Christ, we find that God starts to fill us up with so much of himself and with things that really satisfy, that we're able to start giving up things that we once thought were really important. And that can include sexual sins. And we know that God gives us true freedom. He gives us an experience of love, which is based on his love, which is so deep that he took our place on the cross. He did indeed. And for anybody who has struggled or is currently struggling with a same-sex attraction, we would say that the Bible teaches that you can be free from the guilt and shame that we are pretty sure you're experiencing. Because anytime we go against God and his designed order, we start to feel that internally. As God continues to remind you of his grace that forgives sin, you can find freedom from that guilt and shame, and that will give you strength and hope to continue overcoming. And for some, that might mean living a life of singleness without including any sexual relationships. You know, once you fully trust Christ with your lives, things change. Mm -hmm. In fact, Paul talks about how in some cases it's better to remain single than to have any type of relationship. And for others, it may mean that God will give them a desire for a fulfilling heterosexual relationship, and that they will find freedom and happiness within that relationship. Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, we have stigmatized singleness, especially in this country. And that's a shame because there are a lot of people who live very fulfilled lives and who are celibate. And if someone decided that the best way for them to maintain purity in their relationship with God was to abstain from sex for the rest of their life and to live a life of singlehood, we should not make them feel less than. Well, all of that is background. We want to look briefly at a response to someone who would say, homosexuality can't be wrong if it doesn't harm anyone. That's very often the kind of statement people make after they've heard false teaching that the Bible says it's okay to live any kind of lifestyle that is outside of what God originally intended. Yep. And we believe that this statement, homosexuality can't be wrong if it doesn't harm anybody, is based on a false foundation. The false premise is that nobody is harmed by homosexuality. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that sin definitely harms us, all sin. And the Bible says that homosexuality is sin. Romans 1 makes that perfectly clear. Paul says that these desires for sex with the person of the same gender are unnatural desires. And I know we're really into third rail territory right here, because there's a lot of people that if they've even made it this far, they're probably thinking, okay, you lost me on that one. And yet we're just trying to tell you what the Bible is showing us. And we believe that to be true, because we believe that the Bible tells us how to deal with sin. And in this case, this particular sin. And we know that homosexuality would harm somebody if the Bible says it does. We may not see it readily. We may not understand it fully, but this harm can happen all the way down at the soul level. For one thing, homosexual behavior mars the image in which we have been created. God said that he created us, quote, male and female, end quote. And the design and order of God is to show that men are to be complementary to women and vice versa. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. It means we have different roles, but they're equally important and that they match one another, just like a puzzle. So these two genders, which God assigned to us at birth, with the rare exception in some cases, when we have some physical abnormalities that come into play, but these two genders are pictured beautifully in the Bible as two halves of a relationship called marriage. And this union in which the two become one is both poetic, but it's also literal because two people can, in fact, through the beautifully designed process of sex, become as one person when they are married. And the Bible shows us that when we try to move sexual desire outside this perfectly designed order, which includes the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman, we're showing a rebellious attitude towards God who created us for this perfect union. And when we do that, we degrade ourselves. We lessen what it means to be fully human, since we are created in God's image. And we dehumanize ourselves when we engage in what God never intended for us. And not only does homosexuality harm those who engage in same-sex behavior, but it harms the gospel, since the gospel is pictured by marriage. Marriage is a beautifully designed picture of the relationship between Jesus, pictured as the bridegroom, and the church pictured as his bride. Marriage paints a picture of the gospel itself, and when we redefine marriage, we destroy that picture, mm -hmm. and that destroyed picture really does do harm to the gospel. We're going to put a link to a brief video by Kevin DeYoung in the description to this podcast. Kevin wrote a book titled, What the Bible Actually Says About Homosexuality. I've read it. I highly recommend it. And I would recommend that you get it and read it if you really want to see what the Bible says about homosexuality 
And he answers a lot of people's good questions about what they think it might say or how they might want to interpret that. And Kevin does a really good job and he's very compassionate about how he writes as well. So I'm going to put that link to his three minute and 38 second brief version about that to respond to somebody who says, yeah, but I'm quote born gay. And here are a few of our thoughts based on his comments and some of which just grow out of our own commentary on his commentary. To someone who says they have a genetic reason for their gayness, we can see that the latest scientific literature doesn't really support a definitive gay gene or a genetic cause for attraction to someone of the same sex. Reports of a gay gene are greatly exaggerated. Yep. And I think that it is true that all of us are likely to have certain predispositions to specific behaviors, but we all still have the ability, and this is the big thing here, we all still have the ability to choose to abstain from behavior that we understand to be wrong and harmful. Even if I have a strong predisposition toward high calorie candy bars, and I got to tell you, I love my candy bars, <laughs> then I still have to exercise my will and choose not to make a steady diet of five high sugar content candy bars a day. That would not be healthy. Now, I could just go with it and blame my genetic predisposition on my unhealthy diet, but there will be unhealthy consequences if I do that. In blaming biological determinism for our actions, I'm removing my own will out of the equation, which means in a sense that I'm dehumanizing myself. To blame certain behaviors on the hardwired part of my brain is dangerous. Now, we could start accepting all sorts of other sinful behaviors as normal if we say, oh, he's just hardwired that way, or she's just hardwired that way. That's a dangerous way to think because we still need to be able to choose right from wrong. And anyone who says, I was born gay, and that's just shorthand for I don't consciously choose the desires, I just find that I'm attracted to people of the same sex, we would say that the Bible says we can be born again, so that God creates in us a desire for him, and he gives us the strength to continually make conscious choices to abstain from those things that we know would harm us, even though we are strongly tempted to do them. And it's true that we can only be who we are. That's actually good theology. And along with that theology, once we have identified with Christ, and one way we do that is through baptism, and that's a public display of our identification with him, his death, burial, and resurrection, then the new creation that he brings about in our lives desires to live for him. And that will mean walking away from many of our own desires, mm -hmm. call that dying to self, so that we can live for him. And dying to self is not an easy process. And there's no time limit on it. The uh, whole concept of sanctification shows us that it's a lifelong process. No kidding. I know that in my own life for sure. And as we mentioned earlier, some may struggle more than others once they have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. Some may still have same-sex attractions. Others may have those attractions removed altogether. And some may still have those desires, but they choose to abstain from that behavior out of their desire to know Christ more fully. And to those of us who are believers, and if we don't struggle with this same-sex attraction, we need to realize that to some, this is a very real struggle, and it's not easy. We need to be compassionate and patient and trust that these people see the love of Christ demonstrated authentically. God's Holy Spirit can do a great work of transformation within them. Yeah, 
it's so funny that we tend to want to put time limits on when we think God should be working in our lives. But there's one example of a, a lady in another church pastored by another friend of mine. And she said, well, pastor, when it comes to these people, meaning people in the LGBTQ community, she said, I think that if we do allow them in our church, we should give them one year to figure it out. If they haven't gotten it by the end of that year, we need to say, there's the door. <laughs> My reaction to that was, man, I am so glad that Jesus did not put a one-year time limit on his disciples. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I mean, if I'm going to be honest, you know, there are things with, uh, that I struggle with sometimes every day. Mm. And, you know, I've been struggling with them for a long time. Yes. Gratefully, the mercies of God are made new every morning. And I keep walking in the knowledge that he who began a good work in me will be faithful and will complete that work. That's one of my favorite life's verses right there. So we're willing to present truth, balance the truth with compassion, make friends with people who aren't yet where we are in this area, as you said you had done with a couple of people specifically, not so that we can embrace their lifestyle or condone it, but so that we can show Christ and his love and compassion and grace more clearly. Hopefully then they will be drawn into a relationship with him. We're not trying to compromise the gospel. We're not trying to compromise our belief in the Bible as God's inspired word, but we're trying to live a lifestyle so that people can be drawn into a relationship with God by being given a new identity in Christ so that they can be sanctified over the course of their life as well. Yeah, I think it may be time for us to take our hand off that third rail. Yeah. But before we do, it's very possible that some of our fellow theologians may be struggling in what I see three different areas this time, yeah. whether it's understanding that they need to enter a relationship with Christ for the first time, mm -hmm. whether they have been in a sinful relationship in a homosexual type of way that we have mm -hmm. seen can be harmful to them, and they may want to repent from that. Yeah. And it may mean that there are some believers who have had a skewed vision of how they are supposed to relate to people who are in the LGBTQ community. Right. That's a, that's a good observation. And I think we need to understand that there are people at different places in their lives and in their walk, and that they've been given a lot of different information than we may have been given. And so we do want to be very compassionate as we guide in a prayer that would help somebody start wherever they happen to be and take another step closer to Jesus Christ. So let me guide you through a prayer that could sound something like this, no matter where you are on that continuum. God, I recognize that sin is just sin and that we may have elevated certain sins above others, particularly right now, the sin of homosexuality seems to be a hot button type of sin, especially with some Christians who may be angry and hostile in the way they come against that sin. And I pray that as we're seeking to follow you, we'll recognize that you want to be for sinners, even though you're against sin, no matter what that sin might be. So right now, from where I am, I just want to take one step closer to you. I want to embrace you as my Savior and Lord, and I want you to start removing those things in my life that become roadblocks to the kind of loving, close relationship that you desire to have with me. Uh, Father, I recognize that this is a very contentious subject, and I want to be open to other people so that I can display Christ's love to them. Uh, help me not to compromise the gospel, 
but help me to show the truth and yet to show that truth with love, uh, to be as compassionate as I can be toward them. In all these things, Father, we just recognize that the gospel is at the center of everything, and I just want us to become gospel people. So wherever I am right now, I want you to take me closer and deeper into my relationship with you. Thank you for doing that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's kind of interesting that there has been such a push in this area in the secular world. And yet it all comes down to we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. But it is only through his shed blood on the cross that we can make amends in any way. And that it's so important to begin or continue that relationship with Christ. Yeah. Every morning, we can sit up in bed and go, today is a new day. Your mercies are new, no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. I'm covered by the blood, and uh, I'm going to strive to become more like Christ every day. That's so true. And for those who are still struggling with whatever kind of sin might plague you, you can wake up each day and know that God has enough grace to continue to pour out into your life, and he will forgive, and he will continue to keep drawing you closer to himself. And for some, it's a lifelong struggle. For some, he takes things away in a heartbeat. But for all of us, grace is at the heart of everything. And we want you to experience the grace of God in your life. And I got to tell you, his Holy Spirit does a whole lot better job of convicting than I do. And I keep praying for that. And I pray for those people who are still walking in sin in some area. And I'm praying that the Spirit will be the one to reveal that to them so that God is the one who's drawing them to himself and that I'm not trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit, because I don't do a great job of that. No, and I don't think that's our job. No. You know, it's, our job is to be loving, and sometimes that means we point things out that we see as the, could be an issue, mm -hmm. and yet, you know, at the heart of it, you continue to love the sinner, uh, because that's how we would want to be treated, because, yeah. you know, we still struggle with things all the time. Yep. No that, kidding. That sanctification is lifelong process are, are words that we live by. Mm -hmm. No kidding. Well, fellow theologians, we're so glad you tuned in. Thanks for hanging all the way in this third rail word type of topic here in season five. We've got one more episode left, another contentious topic, but it's one that we want to be as truthful and yet as compassionate as we can. And that's going to be next week. And then we're going to start season six, which is going to offer a challenge to you. And it's going to come pretty close to the season in the spiritual world that some people refer to as Lent, that 40 days prior to Easter. And so we're going to be trying to attempt to do some things in our own daily walk as disciples. And we'll offer that challenge to you as well and see if you want to participate with us in that challenge as we start looking at character qualities and becoming more cognizant, more aware of them on our daily walk, and then journaling that and start to see how God shows up in our daily walks. So we'll do that in season six. Please join us again next week for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.